Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Nick Davis! Nick Davis! I don't believe it! I see it, but I don't believe it! Hey, welcome to another episode of I See It But I Don't Believe It. I'm Gemma Bastiani, as always, and I'm joined via Google Hangout in self-isolation by Lisa and Jason. Hey, guys. Hi, Gemma. Hey, Gemma. How's it going? All right. All right on our side of the isolation, I guess. Nice to be able to do <laughs> this regardless of... <laughs> Yeah, chatting about some footy. Um, Lisa, you're a big old Port Adelaide fan. Uh, the first big one. Old, you're absolutely right. <laughs> <laughs> Here I go, offending guests already. Um, That's it, we're out. Shut this down. <laughs> oh, goodness. Everyone knows Jason as the Carlton fan that just <laughs> talks about history and stuff. But Lisa, you're a, you're a Port fan and this delay is a little bit awkward, so we're going to talk over each other, but it's fine. Um, big Port fan and we haven't had one on the show before other than you because I don't think many of them exist in Victoria, do they? There's a few of us around. I mean, I have a bunch <laughs> of mates here in Melbourne that are Port supporters. I mean, we are spread out across the land. Um, but yes, definitely most of us are in Adelaide, as you would expect. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but you both have wanted to talk about the origins of the showdown and footy in South Australia and all that sort of stuff, because we really don't like if you are just a an AFLM fan or a casual observer of the game, you don't understand the history of South Australian football. So that's kind of what we're going to go into with this one. And even in the research process for this, I learned so much that I had no idea about. Um, it's interesting. I've been living in Melbourne for like 10 years now. And obviously before that, all I knew was South Australia. So coming from there to here and seeing the stark difference in how footy is, how it's known, how it's handled and people's knowledge of it. Um, it is quite different. And I was not surprised to come here and see that, you know, Victoria in general didn't really give a shit about South Australian football or have much knowledge about it. <laughs> uh, and I can understand why that's the case. Um, but it is nice to be able to talk about it and hopefully some people will be really interested in this and not m more so about just footy history in general, rather than it being necessarily South Australian. But I think any footy history is good history. Yeah, and looking into this as well made me want to do a whole episode on WA footy as well, because they're inherently the footy states as compared to New South Wales and Queensland. Mm. So mm -hmm. if there's any uh, WA footy fans out there that want to do that, just give me a shout out. would love to talk to you. That's... Uh, 
Just a little plug. But today we are talking about the origins of the showdown, South Australian footy. We're doing this over two parts because there's so much to talk about and because I threw a bit of a bomb at these guys last minute in terms of research. (laughs) Um, But today we're going to talk about Port Adelaide's history, uh, South Australia's entry into the AFL and the way kind of Adelaide came about as a team as well. Um, And then in the next part, we're going to go into the first showdown and more specifics about that game in particular. So we're going to kick it off with uh, Port Adelaide launching. We're actually in the 150th year of Port Adelaide as a club. So they launched uh, in, obviously, in 1870. Let's say quick maths. (laughs) <laughs> I was just like, I didn't write that down, but it's 150 years. That's easy to work out. Uh, May 1970. I kind of feel like I want to do like the start of the dollop. It's like May 1970. <laughs> <laughs> I've got that on my system now. Thanks. You're listening to the dollop. <laughs> I think we're like showing our age differences as well because I just told you exactly my age before because of something we'll get into later. But now you're all making references that I don't understand. So I'm just going along with it. <laughs> no, it's a great podcast. It's, it's current now and basically they do a history. Uh, one guy knows the story, the other guy doesn't. And so they start off by going, yelling the date out and working backwards until he figures out what's going on. It's all basically stories in American history and every episode is dedicated to a story. And yeah, but every episode starts out with him screaming the date. And that's all I could hear in my head. The first <laughs> thing in my notes is May 1870. <laughs> Sorry, that's everyone. what we should call the. That's what we should call the podcast. May eighteen seventy. Yeah. Well, <laughs> great. If you look at the the beanies that Port Adelaide produced earlier in the year, it's actually May eighteen twenty. But why are you going to bring that up? Someone, <laughs> someone fucked up, right? It happens. Getting out of my system early. Incredible. <laughs> <laughs> well, in May eighteen seventy. Port Adelaide Football Club was founded um, and it's the oldest football club in South Australia. Do you have a little bit to tell us about the foundation of this club? Mm. So, like I said, May 1870, um, the club was originally formed as like a social club for the young men of the area. Um, Now, the township of Port Adelaide, this is way before Federation. So, imagine, try and imagine what that was like. Port Adelaide was the working class area. Um, it was literally the wharfs and factories, and that was it. The original hub was actually in the CBD, um, but they moved to Albert and Oval in 1880, so 10 years later, um, and that's still Port's home today. Obviously, yep. it's undergone a few renos since then, um, but the, <laughs> that it is the exact same location and oval and everything. Um, up until 1877, the games were really random. Other clubs popped up along the way, um, seven other clubs in total, and the games were just purely random. Um, up until, yeah, 1870, when Port and the other clubs formed the South Australian Football Association, and then things became mm-hmm. a little bit more regimented from there. Yeah. So, uh, they won their first... The, so, the thing that people don't understand if they only know Port as an AFLM club is that they have such a strong history of success and that's something we don't necessarily know them for at national level, but in the Sandful 100%. So they won their first Sandful Premiership in 1884. Yep. And then up until 1913, they won seven in that time. 
That's unbelievable. So quite successful, yeah. Just, just, and quite that was just successful. Just, just a little bit. It's a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> but when you think about a modern day state league, there's no one that's done that in any state league. No, I actually don't know the facts on that, but I think you are right. Yeah. Um, and I mean, in the men's, I should say, in the women's, the Darwin Falcons have done that, but in the men's, they that hasn't happened. Yeah. And I've got plenty more stats like that coming up. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned, stats. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned up to 1913. Yes. Um, 1914, they got a special kind of nickname called the Invincibles. Yes. So 1914, the team was dubbed the Invincibles because they had the perfect season. Um, it's the most successful season in SA footy history. They were totally wow. undefeated in that season from game one right up until the GF. Um, the average winning margin for the season was eight goals. Oh, wow. Yeah. Like, it's just insane when you think about that. You think that will never happen again. Maybe it will. No. I don't know. But it's, it's crazy to think about that. Yeah. I can't fathom it, really. Fremantle kind of did that in the women's this year, but they weren't given the chance to continue their perfect season. That's but that's the true. only that's the only reference point to that I can think of. Mm. I suppose yeah. the, the closest as well would be the Essendon in two thousand. I think it was. When yeah, they only lost the one game, so I suppose that's the closest. So the Western Bulldogs. Yeah, mm. but um, yeah, that comes off the back of losing to Carlton in the ninety nine prelim, but. Speaking of Carlton, after they (laughs) won the grand final that year, they played the VFL Premier's Carlton and beat them by 34 points to get their fourth Champions of Australia title. I really enjoyed saying that. (laughs) If Um, anyone didn't know, uh, Lisa just hit Jason in the head with some paper and I quite enjoyed watching it. (laughs) Oh, I'm going to enjoy this. Uh, (laughs) After that, they won a game against what they called the best of the rest, which was the best of the rest of the SANFL teams, and they won that by 58 points. Which so, is unbelievable. That margin is for the to play the best and have that margin. That's ridiculous. Yeah. So, I mean, that's something that, as a club, we're obviously extremely proud of. And um, this is actually something I didn't know about. So when I started doing my research and I was reading about this, I was like, holy shit. I was trying to find out, you know, as much as I could. And, yeah, I was trying to think of other circumstances where other clubs or whatever had gotten close to that. And, I, yeah, the Essendon one, like you said, is probably mm. the closest yeah. that I, know, I can think of anyway. Yeah. If anyone knows uh, any other seasons similar that we can refer to, tweet at us, play on Radio Oh, Mail. yeah, I'd love to know. I'd love to know. Yeah. Um, um, so after that, I've got Mark 1924 marked down here um, because that was the first time a Port Adelaide captain wore the number one Guernsey. And I know See, last I wanted time, to ask you about this, yes. Yes, last time I was on your show, we talked about this briefly and I must admit that my knowledge on this was scrappy at best. Um, yep. I actually thought this started in the 80s, this tradition. It actually goes back to 24 and... There's only been several instances since 24 that the captain has not worn the number one. Um, yep. Obviously, the dual captains, which was club admitted, was a huge mm. mistake. And on um, our preview, we did have a bit of a laugh about that as, you know, Victorians. But when you kind of talk about it and read through it more, you obviously understand the history yeah. and the, the seriousness. But on the surface, it's it sounds kind of like amusing little side note from... The far off regions, you know, it's yeah, and I think that that attitude came from people just not understanding how far back 
this went. Because when you yeah. talk about other footy traditions, like footy fans love footy traditions. Like we lap that shit up. And I think a lot of those comments came from people just not knowing that this was a footy tradition rather than just thinking pop fans are having a whinge. Um, yeah. So, yeah, there's only been a couple of instances since then that the captain hasn't worn number one, some of them because of the injury and stuff. Um, mm-hmm. One was a captain, uh, Jeff Motley, who after um, another captain didn't wear it out of respect for that guy, which I'll come back to later. Um, but, yeah, that's it. So it is a big tradition in our club and very happy to have it back. <laughs> very happy. <laughs> so can you tell us what the origins of it uh, were? I actually don't know. I tried to find it. Um, I don't know whether it was if Clifford just chose that number or if it was given okay. to him. But I know that after this there was a club president who kind of put his foot down and said, this is going to be a thing now. Okay. Yeah. So it was more like honouring the captain that began it just out of having that number? I think so. Um, I actually really wanted to contact the club about this and get some more info, but obviously that's not really an option at the moment because yes. there ain't no one Everyone there. stood down, yeah. Um, but I, that is something I'd really like to know more about and hopefully mm. in future there will be someone there who can answer those questions. With all the celebrations this year that Port are doing around their 150th anniversary, they have launched a pretty interesting website that's all about the history. And I did notice that uh, Adelaide launched something similar just in response to it, which I thought was quite funny. Um, (laughs) They're celebrating their 30th anniversary. But I expected there to be more about the number one Guernsey captaincy thing. And there just wasn't. There is actually a lot of stuff on that website, um, like since1870.com.au. Yeah. Um, that I think they tried to keep it short and sweet. Mm. Um, so there, I noticed as I was doing my research and comparing it to what was on that site, there is a lot of things that's quite – a lot of information that's really simplified. Mm. Um, and I think that's probably a good way of doing it so people do actually read it and absorb it rather than it being too much. And they can go particularly for people who aren't Port fans or who are just interested in learning why they've – quote why they're claiming that 1870 you know yep. why as as if you're a football fan who's only known them since coming into the afl um keeping that simple and then letting people delve into the history and things like this and whatnot after you've kind of got wet the whistle on the history of the sandfall and port and um uh adelaide crows etc yeah yeah the short history of the Adelaide Crows. I feel like I need to keep saying that because, like, not only are you guys Port fans, but the reality is everyone mocks GWS, everyone mocks the Suns for being manufactured clubs. Mm. But Adelaide are a manufactured club as well, but never get that kind of targeted West, on West them. Coast Eagles, Fremantle, you know, all those clubs are manufactured as well. But yeah, it's for weird. whatever reason... Um, Maybe the next generation, you know, the, kid, the kids who are kids now, little, little kids, won't see them as that because they've existed ever since they've been aware of football. So maybe it's just yeah. that generational thing of no doubt there were people who said the same about West Coast when they came in in 87 um, mm. or, you know, obviously Adelaide and Fremantle. Um, obviously Port's in a slightly different category there, but there's probably people who still had parallel feelings about them when they came into the competition, even though oh, they've got I think so much more history. 
I think it was very different for Port though. It wasn't like um, it wasn't like a club was being created to compete for that area. It was they were being elevated to the national competition, whereas the others like GWS literally created to play in a new area because of commercial viability. Yeah. Whereas mm. Port was very much not that. And we'll, when we get into it, we'll talk about their pitch and stuff, but their pitch was very much not that as well. No, not at all. Not at all. Which includes something that I want to bring up when we get there, just because I think it's a bit gross, but also emblematic of the times. So, yeah, we've got past 924. So I wanted to touch on a guy called Bob Quinn who was added to Port's list in 1933 at the age of 18. And Bob was the first real big hero of the club um, and is still regarded as one of the biggest names in Port history. So his dad was captain of the club before him um, and his uncle was actually a foundation player back in 1870. Um, He came from a true Port Adelaide family, um, factory workers and such. They lived just across the other side of the Port River. And him and his dad used to row across the river and walk to Albert and Noble for trainings and games. <laughs> and I worked it out on Google Maps. That's an eight-kilometre round trip with rowing and walking. So I think that's pretty cool. <laughs> um, so he won his first premiership in 36, <laughs> the McGarry yep. in 38. Now, for those who don't know, the McGarry medal is the Brownlow of the SANFL. Um, 39, he was named captain coach and they win the flag that year. 1940, he enlists in the army and he's there until 43, obviously, World War II and shit got real. Um, He's involved in two major incidents while he's away um, and sustains really brutal injuries to his leg, knee, arms and face. There's some quote where he apparently had half his face blown off. Um, And he's awarded a military bravery medal when he gets back. Despite all this, in 1944, he comes back to footy um, and he actually plays a semi-final for Port with a broken arm. Um, in 45, he what? wins the McGarry medal yeah. again. That's crazy. Yep. What? Yep. <laughs> it gets better. Uh, in 46, he captains SA to a draw against Vic at the MCG. And at this game, a guy comes to the change rooms after the game and says, I want to speak to Bob Quinn. And they let him in. And this guy is actually the army doctor that patched up his leg overseas and he lays him, down, lays him down and does an exam on his leg that he actually wanted to take off, but Bob Quinn refused to let him take his leg. And I just think that's a really cool story. That's insane. Isn't that super cool? Oh, I was reading this and that was something I knew Bob Quinn was, but I didn't know about that. And I actually spoke to my dad about it and he was like, yeah, yeah, I knew that. He's amazing. <laughs> Holy cow. We should do a whole episode on Bob Quinn. Yeah, we probably <laughs> could. <laughs> writing that down for future reference. <laughs> um, so in 97, that's his final season and he 47. wins. Sorry, 47. Sorry. No, that's good. 47, his final season. <laughs> he and he... 60, 70 years. <laughs> that's the dream. how amazing he was. <laughs> he, made, he came back as an 80-year-old to play in Port's first game. <laughs> I missed out of the showdown because he pulled a hammy in training the week before. <laughs> so thank you for correcting me. Uh, 47, he wins um, his fourth BNF and he's named captain of the All-Australian team. Um, so he was, yeah, like I said, the real first true hero of the club. He played like 239 games, kicked 386 goals. Um, and obviously there's four years there where there was nothing because of the war. Yeah. Um, three premierships, four bests and fairest. 
two McGarry's. Um, he was in the SA team 15 times, was captain coach for a, a while. Um, and he became a real true inspiration. And his, you know, that work hard, never give up attitude was something that really stuck with the club and has really rolled on as part of its culture. And it, obviously it wasn't just him, but he's kind of credited with a lot of that. Um, there's a bunch of stuff named after him. Um, the grandstand at Albert and Noble is named after him. Um, the Anzac Day Medal in the SANFL is named after him as well. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. So I think he's worth mentioning and worth remembering and is a product of the club, but also a real product of his era as well. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure there's like a whole bunch of incredible stories from wartime when it comes to sport, but that's one of the like peak stories I've heard. The only other thing I can think of that like comes even close to the emotion that would be attached to it would be Jason McCartney's return game mm. after the Bali bombings and all of that. Like, I remember watching that. That was, what, 2004, 2003? I remember watching yeah, that right game there. and just being like, oh, my God, like, as a kid. So, yeah, that that's an incredible story about Bob Quinn. I had no idea. This is – I clearly didn't do much research. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that's no, a rarity no. for Gemma. It's a guy who's worth going really back – and reading up a bit about. Yeah, as I said, we might have to do an in-depth episode just on Bob Quinn. Um, I'll be calling you back, Lisa, for that. Um, <laughs> let's skip towards the 50s now. Yes, so that was yes. obviously 1947 we are talking about. Um, if we move towards the 50s, that was considered the golden era for Port Adelaide. So you won six consecutive Sandville flags between 54 and 59. Yep, and that's still a national record. That's insane. Yeah. I know I keep saying that, but like <laughs> just with my context of footy um, being the age that I am and the teams that I've always gone for and the teams that my family's gone for, my reference points to things are so different to what this team was able to achieve. Yeah. Whereas I think the flip side for me is that this is what I grew up with. You know, I grew up with... Um, expecting my football team to be successful. Yeah. And not accepting anything but that because we had such a history of it. Um, and my attitudes that have changed over the years because they have to. Um, but <laughs> that was very much the Port Adelaide <laughs> attitude was you expect to win. Sorry, David um, Kosh just came into my head and that's why I laughed just then. <laughs> 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 I, and, you know, I'm going to throw my two cents. I think there's some parallels there between particularly Carlton up until the mid-90s anyway in that same mm. – some, some parallel attitudes there. And we're in four four grand finals in five years, I think it was. Sorry, five, won three grand finals in four years and was, you know, almost won four and four. But it's those sort of clubs you just – you hate if you don't go for them but you expect yeah. success, whereas as Carlton supporters now, you don't really expect much. But uh, there's a parallel, I think. I think that's why we don't hate each other's teams is because there is that history. <laughs> and, um, yeah, like we respect each other's teams whilst tolerating them at the same yeah. time. <laughs> <laughs> I think the other thing is as well, like I always – and in, this is in terms of context and understanding – about South Australian football and the Sandful as a whole is that I grew up always having a team in the national competition. So it was never a thing for me that 
the state league was all I had and that was all I was interested in and it was a very like state-based culture whereas you probably experienced both considering Port didn't enter the competition in, until 97. Yeah so we'll, we will come to that because I've got some memories and stuff of like my recollection of that time but absolutely yeah. like when we actually first got the license like I can remember that feeling like that pure excitement um that I can't really compare to anything else yeah. that's happened in my life you know it was a very unique feeling and also a, a feeling of fulfillment as well because it took us so bloody long to get there which we're also going to come to yes um, we're definitely going to come to <laughs> yes <laughs> but yeah it was a ma- it was a massive deal and I look forward to talking about it um <laughs> all right <laughs> But the well, 50s, um, um, yeah, yeah. so six flags in a row. Um, and there was really obviously a lot of people involved in that happening. But there was one guy who really spearheaded it called Foss Williams. And yep. kind of known as the most influential person in port history. Um, yeah. He was also in the war and didn't start playing footy until he was 24 because of it. Wow. Um, he came to port in 1950 at 28 years of age and was straight away captain coach and he wins the BNF that year. Huge. Um, so just he, casually. See, so yeah, it's just casual, BNF, no worries. <laughs> um, so he played from 1950 to 1959 as captain coach, um, six premierships to his name. Uh, he then coached from 62 to 73 for three more premierships. Uh, and they made the finals every year but one that he was coach. <laughs> that sounds like the Swans. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we had two BNFs, five times South Australian captain and two All-Australians. Um, Foss had a real reputation for being really tough, really hard and actually quite fanatical about footy and mm. about the club. Um, he really personified that never get up give up attitude like even as a coach when he was well past his playing years he would still train with the team he would still go out and show the team exactly what he expected of them on the ground whether it was taking hits taking knocks tackles all of it um yeah he also wrote the club creed in 1962 um i don't know if you want me to read that out or yes, not but ple- it's pretty please do yeah um yep. So we, the players and management of the Port Adelaide Football Club, accept the heritage which players and administration have passed down to us. In doing so, we do not intend to rest in idleness, but shall strive with all of our power to further the club's unexcelled achievements. Uh, To do this, we believe there is great merit and noble achievement in winning a premiership. That to be successful, each and every one of us must be active, aggressive and devoted to the cause. We agree that success is well within our reach and have confidence that each member of both the team and management will suffer personal sacrifices for the common end. Also, we know that should after striving to our utmost, after giving our everything, still not be successful, our efforts will become a further part of this club's enviable tradition. Finally, we concede that there can be honour in defeat, but to each of us, honourable defeat of our club and Guernsey can only come after human endeavour on the playing field is completely exhausted. (laughs) It is quite dramatic. (laughs) And we will never tear us apart. (laughs) 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 
but it goes back to the culture. Like, I think, like, to, like having you tell me all this and, and all that sort of stuff, a lot of what the club tries to do now makes a lot more sense. It feels less hollow than what maybe it did to begin with. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, we were t- What were we talking about before? Then you said, oh, that didn't make sense to me until oh, I actually... Oh, the letter that they sent out. Oh, the letter that they sent out to all the members. Um, port people. Sorry? Talking about port people. Yeah. When Jace first read that, he was like, what the hell are they talking about? And to me, I was like, what do you mean? I think this we, we just, just did an episode, Gemma, totally just normal. after that and spoke about it a little bit. Yeah. We had a trivia night that night and you came straight there with screenshots to show me the letter. <laughs> That's right. He yeah. couldn't understand it. Um, and I was like, I don't understand why you don't understand it. But after doing all this research and talking about it and going through all this together, he's like, I get it now. Yeah. I can see where that language and where that mentality comes from. Yeah. Like club culture is such a big thing. And obviously being a Sydney fan, that's very evident. And it's pretty obvious to see those that don't have it and those that do. And the reason for success a lot of the time is it, it, well, you can't have success without the culture. Yeah, I think it's hugely important. I mean, particularly as a port supporter, because we've got, like any club that's been around for a long time, we've got a lot of it. Mm. Um, and I can't imagine not having it. Yeah. That's part yeah. of the joy of supporting a club who has it, I mm. guess. Yeah, it would be unfortunate to go for one that doesn't. I'm not going to name a club because I don't want to <laughs> piss anyone off. Let's move on. Um, <laughs> My <laughs> next. Yeah, go on. <laughs> I was just going to say my next point is getting towards 1982, but did you have anything before that you wanted to touch on? Um, yes. The other thing that really came out of that era and um, a lot of it was Foss again was that footy was family. Um, mm. He would have – like they were, they were a footy family through and through and he would have, you know, the whole team over to his house for dinner at night. He'd be rubbing down players on the kitchen table on a Friday night before a game. Um, he had three sons, all of which play for Port, and a daughter who also played, I think it was national lacrosse, I think. Um, but she was wow. a national sports person as well. Um, so his son, Stephen, coached, played for the Magpies and coached them to three flags. Um, Mark, as we know, coached the Power and also played for the Magpies and also played for Collingwood. Um, one of the players from the era, Jeff Motley, described the team as being welded together as one, and that was really a product of the culture that Foss created. Um, yeah. and a big part of the success of the club at that time was also the administration of the club um, and its president, Bob McLean, who ran like a really, really tight ship and everything mm. had to go through Bob. Recruitment, like the works. Um, like the main bar at Alberton is named after him now and he's known as being like, there was him and there was Foss and they ran that ship, and they're the reason that it went so well. Yeah, and that was, yeah, that's amazing, and, like, I don't think many people understand that Mark Williams, like, why he's such a big name in footy. Because mm, he comes from a massive South Australian footy family. Yeah, and the impact that they had, not only on that club, and, like, the idea that he then coached Port to their first AFL M flag is kind of amazing. Yeah, and that was after his dad passed away. So his dad didn't yeah. actually get to see it, but his mum was there. And yeah. That's pretty, that's pretty yeah. special. Lisa um, looks a little emotional now. Yeah, like when he's out there <laughs> walking down past the crowd crying, like that's about yeah. so much more than just winning a flag. Yeah. 
that's about everything and that we're going to talk about in this episode. That's, that's in the next like yeah. section where it all yeah. like as as I'm learning about it and go back and watch the port mini doco that was released a week or so ago. It's really easy to get caught up in that and then seeing the footage of him coming down and the the choking and then him on the getting the medal and and the cup and I'm just like sitting there getting emotional. Getting emotional like <laughs> I'm getting emotional and he's getting emotional and it's just a mess. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's amazing at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Um, like so, yeah. So his dad, Foss, was the most successful coach of his time, um, until his protege took over, Jack Cale, who was port coach for years and was the first AFL coach as well. Um, he was a hugely successful player for premierships, for best and fairest. Um, he coached from 74 to 96, aside from a couple of years where he coached at Collingwood in the middle. That's mental. Yeah, and he got 10 premierships in that time, so he's the most successful coach. Um, and that included 1980, which was the club's second most successful year after 1914, where they only lost two games and an end-of-year percentage of 184%. Oh, <laughs> Just slide that one in there just as well. Casual. <laughs> um, as a, I just feel like saying, as a, as a person that follows two teams that aren't known for high percentages, um, very good. <laughs> <laughs> Kudos for that one. Um, and Jack was like, when I first got into footy at early teens, I guess he was the big dog of the era. He was the mm. father figure of the club at era, and I've got a lot of love for Jack and watching this documentary that came out a few weeks ago on channel seven, watching him talk, like I think he's 79 now watching him talk. He's still got so much passion and he's so lively and it's the moment where he starts crying and I was crying cause Jack was crying and oh, <laughs> oh I love Jack. <laughs> um, he was known as being um, very positive um, and very motivational, and he really made his players believe that they were better than any opponent they were going to face on the field, whether they actually were or not. He had this power of pumping people up and giving them so much self-confidence. His main footy philosophy was what comes from the heart reaches the heart. And, I don't know, that doesn't kill you. Nothing's going <laughs> to... I just can't imagine it like a ruthless coach nowadays, or not nowadays, but like in the 90s saying that. Nowadays more so, but in the 90s, like, could you imagine Dennis Pagan saying that? Fuck no. (laughs) And saying that, he was still very Port Adelaide. Like, he was still hard and tough and aggressive and still expected nothing but the best from his players. But he just had this really unique way of getting that from them. Black and white's our colours with fear throughout the state. Port Adelaide's fine achievements are nothing short of great. So in this year of Aussie pride, our nation's come of age. The club that stands for number one shall rewrite history's page. It's true we're proud, true we're tough, our players don't give in. Our team thrives on victory, the Magpies expect to win. Mm. Yeah. And that's what made him so good, obviously. Yeah, and so loved as well. Um, and he also really carried on that um, family culture that Foss started. And that really included the members as well. It wasn't just the players. 
Um, there was a real strong focus on accountability to fans and members. Like players had to go to the club rooms after a game, sing the song with the crowd and face the crowd for the honest feedback that they knew they were going to get from very, <laughs> very dedicated shit. Port Adelaide members. <laughs> and that would have been hugely intimidating, but it became like a real strength of the club, like that sense of accountability and that yeah. sense of community as well. It's crazy to hear you say all this stuff with the knowledge in my head of the letter that Mark Rusciuto and the Adelaide board sent to their members at the end of 2019 Mm. and just being like, wow, they're like polar opposites. Mm. That letter, for anyone that doesn't know, said effectively, if you don't like what we're doing, stop supporting the club, which is something that. Port Adelaide would clearly, even though sometimes Port do rub their fans the wrong way, they would clearly never do that. Um, I mean, very few clubs would ever say, just stop supporting us. But, uh, yeah, it's like night and day. Yeah, it is very different. I mean, when Port first made their submission to the AFL, they actually did a survey amongst members being like, what do you want? What do you want us to do? And that result led to their further actions. Rather than just, we're going to do whatever we want and you can deal with it. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Jesus Christ. Yeah. <laughs> um, there was another um, great tradition of like the older players lacing up the Guernseys of the younger players. This was back in the 80s where they still had the old lace up Guernseys. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and from the from the clips I've seen, Port held on to the lace ups, like they were playing games against other sample teams that had finished using lace ups. We kept them as long as we could, as long as as long as we were allowed to, basically. Um, yeah. But there was this real process of the old blokes taking the young kids under their wing, lacing up their Guernsey, and it was this real process of like, this is your suit of armor, this I'm passing on to you, this we are in together, um, and I just really love that story it's quite sweet and it also furthered the strength of that prison bars nickname that the the guernsey got which was actually given to the guernsey by a rival club um the stripes were originally based on the wharf pylons at port adelaide mm. um in the 80s the prison bars thing came out and it was obviously meant as a dig to the club <laughs> and its supporters for its working class roots um but it totally backfired because it became a source of intimidation. It's like, yeah, okay, you want to call it prison bars? Let's, let's make it prison bars. Imagine who's behind these bars and you're about to face them on the footy field. I'm just thinking of the irony of the Collingwood Magpies taking that on a national level from, the, from you and the uh, – I say you, I mean Port Adelaide – and the stereotype, I'll say – of who their supporters are and just the relevancy of that. Mm. Yeah. Man, there's so much I don't know. 
<laughs> I got more for you, babe. I got more. Yes, um, please so also, throw it at me. Also in this era was a really sad time, and that was the death of one of Foss's sons, Anthony. Um, oh, wow. He played for the Magpies, and he was killed in a building accident. Um, so that I think that happened on a Friday. And then the next day, Port were playing Norwood at Norwood Oval, who's one of their biggest rivals. Um, they were, I think at half time, they were quite a way down. And they went into the rooms and Jack gave them this really passionate speech about, you know, Foss is at home with Vaughn listening to this on the radio. They've just lost their son. You know, you can't disappoint them like this. Do it for them, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, they come back and win the game. Makes um, me want to run through a rule right about now. Like, all set up, let's go on. Um, and then after the game, they're in the rooms and Jack actually organised for the whole team to go to the Williams household. He got them all a convoy of cars going, took the whole team and the administration and everything down to the Williams household and they all spent the evening together as one family and mourned their son and their mate, Anthony. Um and I don't know, I've never heard of anything like mm. that before. And that, for me, is Port Adelaide. Like, when I think mm. about Port Adelaide, I think about stories like that. The, the only thing I can think parallelly that was with Hawthorne with, I think it was Peter Crimmins, who missed out in the grand final yeah. because he had, I think it was testicular cancer. cancer. Yeah. Yeah. And then passed away, like, after they won the grand final the next year, like the day after or something. It's, a, it's not quite exactly the same, but it's... That story, though, that when she was telling me that, it's exactly like my reaction before was, oh, you just want to be part of it. You just want to, you know, mm. if you don't hate them, you just want to be part of that environment where that's the first reaction to that sort of tragedy. Mm. And there's so many stories I've read in this research or interviews that I've seen of um, past and current players just talking about the, that welcoming family environment. Um, yeah, it just gives me the warm and fuzzy. <laughs> <laughs> which, which uh, nowadays sure. I think, nowadays that's something that I think a lot of clubs are trying to do. They want to be the family club, like uh, West Coast having all those days where the dads can bring their small kids in and they have games with all the kids. Like, mm-hmm. their tr- clubs are trying to do more of that now. But back then, it wasn't really a broad focus for clubs, was it? I, can't, I honestly can't really speak for what other clubs did. I don't know enough about it. Um, but I just know that this was a real focus of theirs. So mm. I assume that they talk about it so much because it was something different. Um, yeah. And they saw that sense of community as really setting them apart and something special. Yeah. Mm. So I guess it was something different. So also in that era um, was the era of Russell Ebert, who was kind of known as the best... Port Adelaide player of all time. Uh, he played from 68 to 85, 391 games, which is a club record. Um, three premierships, six best and fairest, three times SA captain, and an SA NFL record of four McGarry medals. Wow. Um, he spent one year at North Melbourne where he got the most disposals for the year, um, but he just wanted to come back to Port. <laughs> mm. um, Russell was really known as like the man hugely admired and feared as an opponent as well. He was a hero to so many and so many you know, kids growing up in that era following Port, they wanted to be Russell Ebert. Russell Ebert was the guy that they were intimidated, they, they were impersonating in their backyards when they were playing marks up with their brothers and sisters. Um, he was incredibly talented and relentless on field. 
it was also a really big part of developing future players that would be a household names. Like Greg mm. Phillips, who's Aaron's dad, he played 343 games and won eight premierships for Port. Um, <laughs> and then had to see his daughter playing Adelaide Colours. <laughs> Look, I, I love Erin, so I, at the end of the day, I don't give a shit who she plays for. I think you know, we don't have a team yet, so it's just yeah. not an option. Um, but I'm but very sure that if we did have a team, she would be there. <laughs> I wonder if she, if, if Port in the next couple of years get a team and she's like, would just play a season just because, or come out of retirement for a year to play. I would, oh, that's just the fairy kind of, tale. That is the fairy tale. She'd we'll be see. nearly in her forties by the time uh, Port get a team. She's, and that's she's, that's no. not me sassing Port at all. That's no, just, it's just the reality. way the AFLW is developing. I know that's reality. Yeah. And it, oh, we've, but she'll we've still be better than this. half the players, even if she was yeah. forty. Like that's we've true. talked about she could, this she could about coach like him. how. Oh, that's a brilliant yeah, idea. To coach him, we've talked about this about how I'm going to react when Port finally gets a team, <laughs> and it's just going to be <laughs> tears after tears after tears. Like as a young girl. Growing up surrounded by footy, like my dad was a train, my footy trainer. We were at the footy every Saturday. And yeah. I, I grew up in a world where like boys played footy, girls played netball. And it never even occurred to me to question that. You know, yeah. I'd have a kick of the footy with my dad or at lunchtime at school and all of that. But I played netball because that's what you did. And I loved it. Don't get me wrong. So I just loved sport. But to be in a world now where you know, AFLW is growing and growing and growing and knowing that eventually my team will be a part of that. It's, I was saying this to Jace the other day, like I actually can't put into words how significant and how important that is as a female growing up loving sport and loving footy. Um, yeah. And I'm just so excited for when it finally happens. Yeah. Like I obviously as a Sydney fan don't have a Swans team there yet. And yeah. there's reasons for that and all of that jazz I go for Melbourne and I have that attachment to them and I know that as much as I say now I go for Melbourne when the Swans get a team, whatever, but I go for Melbourne, I just know it's going to be a different feeling seeing them run out in the Swans guernsey. And I was with, um, I'll give a plug for Siren here, but I co-founded a women in sport platform called Siren with six other amazing women and one of them uh, goes for West Coast and... I've mentioned West Coast a lot in this unintentionally. Um, (laughs) One of them goes to West Coast and we went to the Eagles first AFLW game this year together at Vic Park. And like, I'm not an emotional person. The joke is that I'm a robot, but standing there with them running out, she was in tears. Like she was crying. And I'm just like, this is how attached people are. Like, this is a big deal guys. And Mm -hmm. like, yeah. So I can only imagine how you're going to feel when, there is a port. So many tears. Amazing. I mean, as a, <laughs> as a teenager, I was actually involved with the club in like a youth group and I volunteered in this youth group with like, it was like six or seven other kids. Um, and we'd have meetings once a month and we were involved in like the youth memberships, um, a whole bunch of other stuff that went along with the club, like the creating of the mascot. Um, we got to create a banner with the cheer squad and go out with the cheer squad and raise the banner and we got to do all this really cool stuff. We were in TV ads that the club ran and all sorts of stuff. <laughs> so as a kid, like I was really involved, like hugely obsessed <laughs> with footy. <laughs> um, and I mean, that's waved over the years. Like I turned 18 and 
discovered punk rock and beer. So, you know, things changed, but I'm so glad that I've come back to it. And I can remember like all of those emotions and all of those feelings. And yeah, like doing this research has really brought all that back. She's even still got her laminated posters from the time, which were up on her wall for a period of time when we moved yeah, in Yeah, dad here. kept them. And I've got, I'll, I'll find them and send them to you. I've got some funny photos of me in high school at like club events and they're in some magazines and stuff. I'll have to send them to you. It's really funny. Oh, I desperately want to share awkward, them as part of the episode. teenage Lisa. But the highlight yes. of my life at the age of, I think it was 16, I think I was 16 or 17, it must have been, was going into the port change rooms before a game. Not only as a yeah. mad port fan, but as a hormone fueled teenager. <laughs> like, absolute <laughs> highlight of my life up to that point. And I can still remember, like, standing there with these other kids and just, like, being stone cold terrified and just sitting there and staring. <laughs> I can't believe this is happening. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> I'm going to get back getting on track. Back, yeah, getting back to the topic. <laughs> Um, um, yeah, so Russell Ebert, fucking legend. Yeah. Um, he's one of only three people to have a statue at Adelaide Oval. It's him and Malcolm Blight, and I'm a real asshole because I've forgotten the other person. Um, Eddie Betts. Sorry, mate. <laughs> no. Oh. Uh, not that I don't love Eddie, but no statue for him. Um, so this no whole era, like, as we've just spoken about, like, really leads into my beginnings with football, which was, like, the mid-90s, so... Um, beginnings of high can school. We, can we reverse just a tiny mm, bit? Of course. Because we want to touch on the fact that the Sandfall actually in 1982 approached the VFL, which was oh, con- yeah, considered by Victorians. Us, us Victorians who are selfish and only care about Victorian footy, I say as a Sydney Swans fan, mm. um, the VFL was considered the Premier League of the nation and blah, 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 blah. I was not alive here. You can't blame me for the, these opinions. Um, but in 1982, the Sandful approached the VFL about Port Adelaide and Norwood entering in 1982 and they were denied that application. Mm-hmm. So yeah. then when it comes to the VFL wanting to become the AFL in 1990, they wanted a South Australian team because South Australia was such a powerhouse of a football state. And... This is where a little bit of controversy starts, a little bit of fighting starts within the sandfall, and this is where we're going to really get into the nitty-gritty of it. It actually goes back a touch before that. Um, It goes back a touch before that. Yeah, it's 81. The sandfall were like, yeah, let's put together a composite team. Let's put together a a team to join the the VFL at the time so that, you know, we can take the best South Australian players... Because um, one of the things they were starting to get worried about was losing all of the best players to the VFL. Um, mm. And there is a quote from the time from around 81 um, after the Sanford was told, no, we're not going to expand just yet, um, that the VFL or some members of the VFL, some pre- club representatives and some of the higher-ups thought having one or two Sanford teams, would they would end up getting too strong and overpowering the Victorian teams. Um, and AFLW, anyone? <laughs> <laughs> and, the, uh, and they wanted to, uh, the Victorian clubs wanted to still poach the best Sandful players. Uh, and the example that they used was uh, Craig Bradley and Stephen Kernahan, who 
funnily enough, both came to Carlton in 86 and were part of such a good period of Carlton's time. So if they had joined then, then they most likely would have stayed in South Australia and football history would be very different. Craig Bradley, uh, and that pretty o- player, just saying. Yeah, Craig Bradley. <laughs> They're pretty open about the fact that they did want to continue to poach those players as well. Like, they weren't shy about that being a reason. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Uh, And even then, in 85, there was a study into the National League and trying to get, seeing how that would look. Uh, And they said that it shouldn't be a Sandful composite team. Um, Maybe something like a Port and Norwood joint team, which would be kind of like a you know, uh, Collingwood-Richmond kind of joining forces to create a team in a new league, which is... As someone well, who grew up with their biggest safety, rivals, the thought of Port and Norwood combining is absolutely unfathomable. Yeah. They were the biggest rivals happened. in the whole sandfall. Never happen. So yeah. we head toward 1990 as part of that. And, yeah, the AFL approaching... Well, the VFL becoming the AFL and approaching South the sandfall to talk about a team entering the Sandful. Now this is where it gets a little bit convoluted. So we're going to start to talk about Adelaide in this part. And I've got the dot by dot points written down mm. here. So May, 1990, the Sandful unanimously decided that a team would not enter until 1993 because they wanted an individual club to be that entry and they needed time to work that out. They, the the SA NFL also wanted total control over the matter mm-hmm. and yeah. they actually told the AFL that if this was to go down, they'd have to agree to some really strict conditions. Mm. Um, and so what there was a lot of back and forth there and they were also worried about the strength of the league. They thought that the VFL was just going to overrun them. Mm. Yeah. One, of, one of those conditions too at some point was they wanted to cap it at only 14 teams. And, and so reading those conditions and reading the way that the Sanford was talking about it, it's almost as though that they were seeing that the VFL was going to become the big AFL, what it is now, and that they didn't want to be left behind. They still wanted to swing their, you know, proverbial around a bit that we're still important. Um, yeah, and this is in an era where the South Melbourne had relocated to Sydney and become the first truly non-Victorian team playing in the VFL. West Coast had entered in 87, so there was there were some non-Victorian teams. I'm trying not to say interstate because it's non-Victorian teams um, in the competition to create a national competition in the process. Um the AFL wanted a South Australian team sooner than 1993. So they started Sorry, just, conversation. Just to, go, to go back a step on that is that when yep. 86, I think we sort of briefly touched on when they were invited, but declined, that's when uh, the AFL, the VFL at the time went to the waffle um, and the waffle were prepared to pay the license fees up front and they were prepared to put a team together from like a representative team um, yep. and that's when they went to Brisbane as well. So South Australia probably being, you know, one of the strongest states in a hindsight should have had a team in at that point, not saying who or, or anything, but at that point of development, it really should have been an Adelaide, a South Australian team in the mix over going to Brisbane. But, but they shot themselves in the foot by wanting too much control over it, yeah. which the AFL was never going to give them. VFL, sorry. 
Yeah. So, um, because they had, as a as a league, decided they weren't going to enter a team till 1993, and the AFL wanted a South Australian team sooner, they actually started conversations with Port Adelaide and Norwood uh, on the quiet, and the Sandville weren't aware, other clubs weren't aware, and by the time Port had reached terms with the AFL to enter the competition in 1991, the other nine Sandville clubs and the Sandville as a league objected, and the litigation began. Yeah, so at that time, like, it was a huge deal in South Australia, this whole thing. So um, even though the SANFL had said no, like, clubs were interested, like, clubs were excited to join this Mm. national team, like, national competition. Like, people, they wanted to do it, and the SANFL were holding them back. And the AFL obviously wanted it as well. Um, and so all these meetings were happening in secret. Like, the, apparently there was a country town where they used to meet in. Yeah, and it was like, a town called Corn, these... Q-U-O-R-N, which just so happened to be the birthplace of Foss Williams. Yeah. Um, so all this <laughs> shit happened in secret and eventually, you know, an offer is made and they're actually faxing paperwork back and forth between Port, the lawyers and the AFL to get this done. And then... That they're faxing one day, literally the next day, the journos get a whiff of it and it's on the front page of the paper. And that's where the shit hit the fan. And all hell breaks loose Sun- after a, that. There's a great <laughs> article on the Port Adelaide website about it where they start off like, it's Sunday the 29th of July, 1990. Uh, and, you know, the, the uni students were hung over and sleeping in and the parents were taking their kids for a walk. And... Everything was normal until a newspaper comes out. Ports <laughs> playing the AFL. And it's this really dramatic the drama. intro to the... It's amazing. It's a great little article. <laughs> but oh it was dramatic. Like, and the reaction to it was extremely dramatic. Like, SANFL and the other clubs immediately put down a legal injunction that Port cannot even talk to the AFL, let alone complete this offer. Yeah, so it barred them from entering in 1991. And then, so it meant the AFL didn't get that, what they wanted because they wanted a South Australian club. Mm. Port didn't get what they wanted because they couldn't enter. And the Sandful were in this position where they had to litigate to stop this from happening. Yeah. So everyone had to compromise at some point in order to make peace. And the compromise was the creation of the Adelaide Football Club, the Adelaide Crows, to enter the competition in 1992 in order to satisfy everyone pretty much except Port Adelaide, really. Mm. Pretty much. Um, And there was a lot of other shit that went on during this time. Like, the SAFL actually did a press conference and in that press conference they threatened to fine, sue or even suspend Port for for their dealings. (laughs) And taking volunteers and staff members personally to court as well as the club. Yeah. So, no, it was the um, port board members were personally sued. They were also physically assaulted. Um, there was a lot of tension at games. And there was a lot of altercations and violence at games. Um, yeah, it, was, it wasn't pretty. Another important... It's just, oh, like the ego and the want for control by a few people create so much and, like... Yeah, now, whatever, it's fine, we've got showdowns because of all this, like, blah, 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 blah. But the reality is, Port Adelaide should have been the team. Like, they had the 
winningest culture, and I say winningest because it feels right but probably isn't a word, um, they were the strongest club, they were the oldest club and they had the best club culture. They were the obvious choice. But for the Sandful to bar it in such a way has completely changed the makeup of a national competition. Mm. And there were AFL, well, sorry, VFL teams who were in Port's defence and were on Port's, Port's team who were saying, yeah, having Port in would be a good addition, be good, strong. Yeah. The, um, there were a couple of um, presidents and, and high-ends of clubs uh, saying, yeah, Port Adelaide would be a great enter. Malcolm in- Blight was one. He was like, if you're going to do it, Port's the only option. Mm. I can't remember the exact quote. But that's basically what he said. Yeah. Well, there. The, we'll we'll get to the pitch video in a second because mm. I think there are a few of them in that. But the this meant that Adelaide came into existence, and I said to you guys before we started recording. But the fun fact that I found out when researching all of this is that the Adelaide Football Club was given its license by the AFL the day I was born. So I'm the same <laughs> age as the Adelaide Football Club. <laughs> um, it's actually interesting for anyone to... wondering. Ooh, sorry, Gemma. For anyone wondering, that was the 19th of September, 1990, the greatest day uh, ever. Just, yeah. <laughs> There's also an interesting, um, uh, I'm trying to find the exact year, but earlier in, in that first round when they tried to push, uh, I think it was like 81 or 82 when, they, when the Sandville first wanted to put a team in the VFL, they actually registered mm. the Adelaide Football Club then. So they owned it and nobody else could then come and claim it down the track. And I think it yeah. was in 86 or 87, so a bit close to that, I even started selling shares in that and, and made it an entity so that, again, they owned it and that they uh, they couldn't have a team, you know, the, the, the VFL couldn't create a team without being that. So, you know, they could have gone and called it, if they wanted to go bypass um, Port and the Sample and, and bypass these teams, they, could have, they would have had to go for like a West Coast Eagles, you know, a non mm. a non specific team, but they they jumped on that early. But again, kind of wasted the opportunities they had. Um, yeah, at the time. But yeah, the, the um the guy who actually copped the most flack through this whole thing was a guy called Bruce Weber, who was I think was the president of Port at the time, and he spearheaded this entire thing. Um, and he um. Port supporters used to joke about and call him the godfather of the Crows. Um, <laughs> everyone ragged on him, aside from Port supporters, obviously. Like, And Crows supporters were constantly ragging on him. And it was like, if it wasn't for him, the Crows wouldn't exist. No. It never would have happened. Like, He's the godfather of the Crows, and I just love that because Crows <laughs> fans fucking hate it. <laughs> well, the, like this is this is a point we're getting at. So uh, we're talking about the origins of the showdown and South Australian football and all this sort of stuff, and we're obviously looking at it from a particularly Port Adelaide point of view. But the reality is, is that South Australian football in the AFLM competition, the national men's competition, is intrinsically linked to what Port Adelaide did, whether it was from 1870 or through the 80s, it's intrinsically linked to Port Adelaide, even though they were the second South Australian team to officially enter the national competition. And I think that's something that a lot of people are missing. And that's why we're going through it bit by bit, because it's so important. And as part of the Sandful wanting to have this control and all that sort of stuff, it meant that they owned the Adelaide Crows right up until 2014. And that's 
that was a really interesting time too because there was a whole lot of when Port Adelaide did join, and Lisa will know more of the specifics, there were a lot of conditions put on them and the uh, Port Adelaide Magpies, their Sandville team, and they couldn't be connected. They had to, ha- they had to be connected, but not connected. And um, mm. it wasn't until then, and Port Adelaide's pushing again. So another thing that Port Adelaide helped bring change in is they then were able to get that back, but then also it meant that Adelaide got their VFL team that they owned, they ran as well. You'd be able to... Because because uh, they yes. they did the pushing, it's another case of Poitelay did the hard yards and got the benefits for both clubs. Yeah. Or the, all of Sample. Yeah. Yeah. So the basic story is that when Port did their first bid, I guess you would say, with the AFL in 1990, um, mm. the deal was that um, they would have Port, which was you know became the power, and they'd still have the Magpies, and that was kind of the deal. Second time round, the deal was that um, there would just be the power. Yeah. And that was the deal that was agreed upon, signed upon, and that was what they were prepared for, you know, administratively, financially, all of that. Then the the SNFL and the clubs changed their mind and decided that they wanted the Magpies to continue. And Port's like, oh, fuck. (laughs) Like, that's great, (laughs) but we're not prepared for this. Um, Yeah. But they also weren't, the Magpies weren't allowed to have any AFL benefits whatsoever. So they had to set up a whole new ground at a a suburb over called Ethelton. um, Mm. And they had to be completely removed from each other. Um, Yeah. And that was a really dark time for the club, um, mainly for the Magpies, because they struggled financially, facilities, on-ground performance the works because I was totally thrown Mm. into disarray. Um, And it wasn't until 2010 where a previous Port player, Tim Ginever, who's a big name at Port and still does a lot of media stuff for them and everything. For Victorian people, he's like the Tim Watson of uh, South Australia. Yeah, that's fair. (laughs) Um, He created the one Port Adelaide football club, which was a movement to bring the two back together. And they had to do petitions and like this whole bunch of shit. And it didn't actually happen until uh, I think it was 2014 or 2015. Um, and that's why we have the new logo and this one Port Adelaide thing, because it is a big deal that we can finally move back together. The downside of it and is that Port we can't... wearing the prison bars in mm. uh, special games as well. Yes, that's a whole other fight that we can go into later. <laughs> oh, yes, Collingwood. It's, it's really interesting too, though. I'm going to jump back half a touch, but um, back in 1990 when Port and the VFL, or the, or the AFL at the time, were um, negotiating, getting it going, that Port Adelaide were given some, um, not benefits, but they, the, the, the fees that they were going to have to pay to join. And um, the deal that they had from the, from the AFL was a bit more generous because they really wanted them in and they were kind of obviously going through the back door minus the sample. It's like, oh, I'm going to buy this car from someone directly so I don't have to pay any dealership fees. It was a little bit of that kind of deal. Um, the sample wasn't going to get any money, so the AFL could pay less and Port would get it all. But when Port Adel- uh, the sample found out and they've, mm. they've gone, hold on a minute, well, when you offered it to us ages ago, you were going to charge us $2 million, but you're offering Port $1.5 and, and this other stuff, so we want that too. Like and and the VFL like well, you 
you want that now, but when we, you know, only because we're kind of going behind you, you know, you're not going to get both the benefits of, of, um, you know, us giving the discount to port because we want them in and you said no, like, sorry. Yeah. Um, so. Well, and the AFL made the sample drop all the legal action if they wanted Adelaide to have their team. So all the legal action um, and the sample to pay its costs, all that. So as part of the deal, um, the sample had to, had to sort out that and put that to bed. Otherwise, they, the AFL weren't going to grant the licence to the Adelaide Football Club. Yeah. It was very convoluted. Mm. Now, we all know now that Adelaide entered the competition in 1992. Um, they had a specific deal with the AFL that no other South Australian team could enter the competition for five years. Yes. So Port Adelaide made a pitch in 1994, but the reason for them not entering until 1997 is because of this deal with Adelaide. Otherwise, the AFL would have had them pretty much immediately come in. So there was a lot of time. So let's talk about Port Adelaide's pitch in 1994 because the pitch video is fascinating. It's it's a kind of a funny video in a way. The football public want Port Adelaide. Healthy competitions about rivalry and intangible that can't be manufactured, only harnessed. There certainly is an antagonism towards the Crows and, and providing it's uh, kept in its right context, that's a very, very good thing. And I think they'd make an ideal club to add to the, uh, to the AFL, in my opinion. I think it'd be just great. There's, it's very 90s, I should start by saying that, but also things like Tommy Hafey talking about why they're the right choice and um, all these different, like Kevin Sheedy talking about why they're the right choice and then talking about how having pokies is going to help them support themselves as a club, which is pretty gross. <laughs> <laughs> That's so Adelaide as well. Fucking pokies everywhere. <laughs> Yeah, so it's like it's such a fascinating video, but it's really interesting to see the way they pitched themselves as a club. It was very um, rivalry based and very much in competition with what Adelaide were doing in the national competition. A lot of them against us. Port Adelaide is already a fierce rival of Adelaide's. Port is still a fiercely working class club and its fans shun Adelaide as a yuppie playground. And that's a, something that had existed for, you know, a hundred years, that attitude of them versus us. Like, Port was so... Unless you were a Port supporter, you hated Port Adelaide. They were the only two options. And the creation <laughs> of the Crows was essentially an amalgamation of all the other SANFL clubs mm. that only furthered that culture of them versus us. It's really interesting. Like, you think of, well, the Adelaide, when they joined, when their they first... There's a quote that their first training session, they didn't have colours, they didn't have a coach, they didn't have a board, but the players were together and they just didn't know what they were doing the first, you know. At, that, that at the bare bones of it is, is the difference between the Adelaide creation and the Adelaide history. It's like, all right, put these people together and we'll build out of what the players we've got versus the Port Adelaide IP, if you want, and the, and the, the, the club history and building the AFL team on top of those foundations rather than just foundations of spite, I suppose. To be fair, though, Port had a lot more time to prepare than the Crows did. Oh, yeah. Like, their debut was seven years in the making. Mm. Crows had a year. 
to get ready. Months. So, not, not even. Months. Yeah, yeah. So very different starts in a lot of ways. It kind of reminds me of heading into this season because the Crows didn't even have a coach until after the draft. Mm. <laughs> You're right. I didn't think about that. Yeah. It's also really interesting. Like, obviously, we're going to jump forward, but Hawks, sorry, the, yeah, the Crows won their, um, their first game against the Hawks in 1991. By uh, 86 points. A huge amount. And they only had seven players with BFL experience up until that point. Um, and it is worth noting that Graham Corns was their first coach because uh, <sighs> as we kind of get a little bit down the track, that'll be important for those who aren't uh, um, history. But another really interesting nugget that I wanted to highlight before we move into this, sorry, Alicia, you're ready no, to... No, 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 go, go, go. Is that um, at one point, Port Adelaide were tossing up and, and having discussions with North Melbourne about buying their licence so they could get in sooner. It was like, it wasn't a... It didn't really go, obviously go to its full extent but um there was those conversations which would have been you know would they have kept the stripes and kept the navy blue and white so they can keep the the bars i mean it wasn't the merger it was a buyout buyout yeah who knows i just i find it so funny how many times north melbourne have nearly (laughs) just not existed and like we've been so close to not having them for so long like just get rid no I don't, I don't like North Melbourne. Their, then, their women's what, team is amazing. Men's, I just, no. No time for They f- They keep finding new and terrible ways of celebrating a bad, bad man as if he's the only person that ever played for their club and coincidentally also played for Adelaide. So, like, <laughs> uh, <laughs> just trash. Like, there are other good players that have played for North Melbourne and currently play for North Melbourne. Talk about them instead. Anyway, uh, also Graham Corns, bad, bad man as well. So uh, we're no, on a good track here. Good track. 1995 as well. This is this is another interesting nugget that Norwood is to try and get in before um, Port Adelaide. They partnered with the winemaker Wolf Blast and tried to buy the Crows and had their private ownership. So then it would be the Norwood, a, a Norwood club and it would have a whole other machinations with that. But again, obviously that, uh, that bid didn't, end up progressing and um, Sandville kept the, uh, the ownership of the Crows. Am I wrong in saying Norwood has the same colours as the Crows? No, they're navy and blue. Na- navy and red, you mean? Yeah, navy and red, sorry. They're more <laughs> Melbourne colours. Yes, it, yeah. Melbourne, yeah. Which, which Sandville team has the Crows colours? The Crows reserve side. Is that with the with the <laughs> chevron with the V? No, I feel like there's a Sandville club that, ha- or maybe it's the South Australian Under Eighteen team yeah, that I'm I think thinking that must of. Be it. Yeah, Will Hayward, Will Gould, other <laughs> Swans players, George Hewitt, Jordan Dawson. Should I keep naming <laughs> South Australian Swans players? <laughs> but uh, Dylan Stevens, Stephen Kernahan's the only South Australian player that's you know stand by your man. Premiership winner. Anyway. Oh, Jesus, that video. Okay, so we're, we're at the pitch video and it was fascinating. And Port Adelaide have been accepted. They're preparing for their 1997 debut into the national competition. And this is where we're going to take a brief break for part one to finish. And we'll be back next week. We will be back in about five minutes. But <laughs> the episode will be back next week of the first showdown which we're going to get right into and all that jazz but thank you so much Jason and Lisa for joining me 
for this episode and for the next episode um, while we're in self-isolation. Oh, an absolute pleasure. I cannot wait for part two. <laughs> I'm ready. I'm so ready. <laughs> this has been, I see it, but I don't believe it. The Part one, the origins of the showdown. You're listening to, I see it, but I don't believe it. I said that already. I'm really sorry. My brain is a bit frazzled. This is Play On Radio Podcast Network and uh, subscribe to all the shows wherever you get your podcasts. All that jazz. We're coming back with part two shortly. Yep. <laughs>